Good morning, class. For today's history lesson, we're going to talk about someone very important. The President of the United States of America. Now, I'm sure a lot of your parents have told you that maybe one day you'll grow up to be the President. I want to let you know right now that that is a lie. Not one of you in this class will ever be President. Hello and welcome to the Almost President's podcast weekly coverage of the 2024 presidential election. On today's episode, Trump cruises to an easy victory in Nevada, meaning we can officially say the Nevada Republican caucuses were not rigged because Trump won. Meanwhile, Nikki Haley had to concede her race in the Nevada Republican primaries to the infamous none of these candidates who I guess ran the better campaign. I, I don't know. We'll get into it. And a snipe at Biden's age could be more damaging to his chances at re-election than mishandling classified documents. And if you watch the Super Bowl, you got a taste of good old American values in more ways than one. And feeling the Burgum with Doug Burgum. So Kevin, this is probably one of the most humiliating stories to come out of this election cycle. And we've had people getting down on bended knee to Trump. What the hell happened to Nikki in Nevada? This time around... In the Nevada primary, there was a new kid on the block, an underdog that we haven't really talked about before in the Republican primary, who just took the race away from the much favored Nikki Haley. And of course, that candidate is none other than none of these candidates. I didn't know none of these candidates was running. I mean, like, how has this candidate been such a dark horse up until now? I think, honestly, most voters would probably get behind a, a candidate like that. Yeah, I was going to say, I've been seeing a lot of bumper stickers actually for this candidate. So, you know, I mean, apparently look, it's a big name. Yeah, I mean, we're getting down to it, right? You got one old dude who's trying to get you to pay his legal bills and keep him out of jail. And then another old guy who just like turns into a Roomba whenever he finishes a speech. So none of these candidates. Yeah. Sounds pretty good. Yeah. So to get, I guess, serious for a sec, just to, to explain what's going on here. So in the interest of time... We're just going to summarize the Nevada primary quickly, but if you want a more detailed explanation, we did cover this on our last episode and we went into why the Nevada GOP primary is very weird right now. Basically, to sum it up, the Nevada GOP decided to have a caucus in addition to the primary election because they don't like Nevada election laws. And the primary itself, the election that Nikki Haley ran in and that none of these candidates ran in, that actually doesn't count for anything. No delegates will be assigned based on that. Only the caucus is going to count. And so Trump is on the caucus ballot, not the primary ballot. And that's probably going to start to make sense of why all this stuff happened. But to make things a little bit weirder, in most states, you can write in whatever candidate you want. So for example, in New Hampshire, Joe Biden was not on the ballot. And so he wound up winning by running a write-in campaign. He had people write his name in, even though his name wasn't formally on the ballot. But Nevada is different and enshrined in state law is this none of these candidates option for the primary ballot. And so in this case, Trump voters all voted for none of these candidates rather than writing in Trump like they would have on another ballot, basically. And so in the end, none of these candidates won 63% of the vote. With Haley, of course, winning 30% of the vote, Mike Pence grabbing up 3.8%, and Tim Step On Me Scott, as I like to call him, getting 1.4% of the vote. So that's how things kind of turned out. So I guess the question is is this a bad sign for Haley, or is getting 30% of the vote enough to write home about on this one, considering the circumstances? 
Or, you know, should we say that none of this really matters since Haley wouldn't have been getting any delegates here anyway? I think it most definitely matters. I mean, she is quite literally in this case writing home about this primary. Regardless of the fact that the delegates were not even assigned in the primary, I think that this is a big statement by the Republicans to say that they want Trump and they want nothing to do with Haley. When I found out that you could vote in the caucus as well as the primary, that means that these voters went out and caucus for Trump. What was that on, on the Thursday? And then earlier that week, what was it? I believe it was Tuesday. They also participated in a primary where they went out and spent their time or perhaps did a mail-in ballot, which I guess would be a little bit hypocritical, to say none of these candidates. So this is a huge statement by the Republican base to the establishment that they want nothing to do with Nikki Haley. But ultimately, Nikki Haley's campaign has said that this is not affecting their choice to stay in the race into South Carolina and potentially even into Super Tuesday on March 5th. But I mean, none of these candidates won double what you were able to pull in. I mean, I don't know what you do with that. How do you spin that? And now you're going into a state where you're down by 30 plus points. I, I just don't know what you can do at this point to salvage that. Yeah. So let me try my best to steel man the optimistic case for Nikki Haley here, which is just that I think in any of these elections, the fact that you're getting anything at all is saying something. And I always wonder if the roles were reversed and we were talking about Joe Biden and Dean Phillips right now, I think we would be talking about how we would have our hair on fire over the Biden campaign. We would be like, how come he's not getting more of the vote? Blah, blah, blah. And that seems to be like a little, at least to me, a little bit of a, I don't know, a mismatch between the two parties where maybe because Democrats are just slightly more anxious people at the moment, there's a sense that if Dean Phillips gets 2% of the vote in one of these primaries, you know, everyone loses their mind. But Nikki Haley gets 30% of the vote in an election. And people are like, well, she's just totally tanking. She sucks. I mean, we all know what none of these candidates stands for. So I, I don't know if I fully buy the idea that Nikki Haley is in good shape here. But, you know, maybe that's the, <laughs> the other side of the, the argument for Nikki Haley. It's a rough comparison, though, to compare Nikki Haley to Dean Phillips and to kind of imagine this universe where Dean Phillips is pulling as much as Haley is pulling of the vote in the Democratic primary, because Biden just has so many things going on within the party that are working against him right now. It seems like what's going on within the Republican Party right now is making Trump stronger, is, is firming up his base and pulling more people in and making Haley weaker. Whereas when it comes to Biden, the age thing, which we're going to talk about, is not going away. And it appears like it's only getting worse. And there's the fact that there are a lot of people who, and, and completely understandably so, think that he should be calling out Israel more severely than he is. He should be not saying Netanyahu is an asshole behind closed doors. He should be saying that out in the open. He should be conditioning aid to Israel, putting a lot of pressure on Congress to do that. And Democratic voters are really not happy about that. So it's it's tough. I mean, I think Biden's starting to look weaker and Trump is just starting to look stronger. And then you can look at Biden's approval numbers and you see the same thing. What is he in the mid low 30s right now? Dude's underwater. Yeah, for sure. I mean, his approval numbers are quite bad. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a fair point. Joe Biden just seems to have a lot more issues right now. And Trump 
really doesn't. To shout out the guys at America, the conversation, I remember listening to an episode where Andrew said that Trump has no ceiling and Joe Biden has no basement. And, you know, I I can't say I wholeheartedly agree with that, but I I get, I agree with the the sentiment behind it. Yeah, I think that's right. And Joe Biden's presidency to me is very weird because he, in a way that almost no other president has been elected before, he was running on a campaign of, well, I'm not the other guy. And that was like very much a big point in his favor in 2020. And so I'm always wondering, like Joe Biden, more so than any other president, did not rely on enthusiasm about him. He just relied about anti-enthusiasm about the other guy. And so it's always the question of, is that distaste for Trump still there? And that's a big open question to me. And it's a big open question as to whether or not this type of, I guess, model for your presidency can actually be sustainable for a second term. Yeah, it is. It's interesting. I guess there is a mismatch there in terms of, well, Joe Biden, his candidacy just feels a little bit more fragile, which I wonder if that's a little bit of an illusion. In a weird way, Donald Trump is still not as much in the public eye as he could be. You know, he's not constantly on TV. He's not constantly giving speeches that, or at least speeches that are filtering through to like the liberal press. And so I wonder if once we're in the situation where Joe Biden and Donald Trump have to debate each other and everybody sees that and it gets ran on every TV screen in America, if that might cause people to realize that that these are what their options are (laughs) and remind people of why they voted for Joe Biden in the first place, because he's still not the other guy because it's the same other guy. Yeah, I don't even want to envision that debate because I think that would be the in equal parts, saddest and scariest debate that at least I'll have seen in my lifetime in this country. But a big thing that I think Biden and the left has allowed to happen to them by making the agenda, let's make politics boring again. Let's get back to business as usual. Let's focus on our legislative successes, but not be too loud about them. Just show that we're doing the job is that they've ceded the high ground to the Republicans when it comes to controlling the narrative. It's all about Biden's age. Well, Biden and Trump are not that far apart in age at all. It's all about the stumbles that Biden makes on the campaign trail. When Trump is making just as many stumbles, except they sound unhinged and insane, they've just kind of allowed the Republicans to run with the narrative and now they're trying to pick it up. And I think it might be a little bit too late for it. I don't know. I mean, we'll see what happens. I know that Biden is getting a little bit spicier. I did appreciate that his campaign staff or whoever runs his Instagram, um, I can never in a million years picture Biden even opening up Instagram. I probably doubt he knows what it is. When the Chiefs won the Super Bowl <laughs> the next day, they did you see this, Kevin? They put out the dark Brandon picture, just Joe Biden glowing eyes. And the caption was, uh, "It the Super Bowl went exactly as planned. Yeah, it, it is funny. And I, I do think... I actually think it's a very good idea for them to be running that sort of campaign on memes, kind of. But yeah, I mean, I agree with what you're saying that I think for a while, I do think that the Democrats and liberals at large kind of allowed the right to work very hard at establishing all these narratives without establishing counter narratives. You know, I know this stuff because I'm on the cesspool that is ex formerly known as Twitter. And I see these people running around, you know, establishing all these narratives. And on in those circles, there are various things that are established as fact that are just complete bullshit made up. 
like the idea that Ray Epps was secretly orchestrated the whole things. There's zero evidence for this, but there was nobody providing a counter narrative to this whole Ray Epps conspiracy theory. And so it's basically established fact. And I think we talked about this on a previous episode, but it's very hard to like dislodge things that have been established as facts in people's minds, even if they are untrue and even if they're obviously untrue. And I do wonder if it's too late to push back on a lot of these narratives at this point. Like I think for a lot of people, they're of the opinion that, you know, January 6th was a CIA sting operation to kind of humiliate Trump supporters and to make them look like they're traitors, blah, blah, blah. And that's just a accepted fact for some people. And it's going to be very hard to fight that narrative. And who knows if you even can. Right. And it's it's tough. I almost view perhaps the way that the left has viewed taking on Trump as almost let's not pick up the rope, right? Let's take the high ground here. We're not going to be like him. We're not going to respond to these baseless attacks when maybe they should have. But I think they also can't let him define the rules of engagement, right? They're not. Let's not go back and rehash the 2020 election and that the, the whole the big lie. Let's not go back and do that. We could talk about January 6 again when it gets. Relitigated by Jack Smith and the special, you know, special counsel and all that good stuff. But the fact that Trump is becoming more and more in people's faces because of the election cycle, I mean, he's saying crazy shit all the time. You know, he's saying, and I loved this one because this is a guy who doesn't pay his lawyers, saying that if European countries don't pay their dues to NATO, fuck it. He'll let Russia attack them. He allowed this border deal that. The right essentially got everything that they wanted on it to crash and burn. And ultimately, it's also going to cause aid to not potentially go to Ukraine, who desperately, desperately needs it, and allow aid to go to Israel. Well, the border is like the... I mean, Jesus Christ, We these debates were freaking horrific that you and I watched. All these Republicans just bitching about the border just basically being an apocalypse and going to even so far as to say that like Biden should be... They said he should be impeached, right? Yeah, that Biden should be impeached over the crisis at the border, and then they just let this go. So, well, not they, not only did they let it go, they shot it down. <laughs> it wasn't the Democrats. The Democrats all voted for it, and yeah. the Republicans didn't because Donald Trump told them, "You need to harm the country in order to make President Biden look bad," and they all followed suit. Yeah, so I think the more of those things that come up, I think that the left needs to just and 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 the moderates on the right need to just pick up a trumpet and just look to be as loud, if not louder. Just make all the noise that they can about that. Agreed. So speaking of Joe Biden, I think we'll pivot on to our next thing here. So if you're not Joe Biden, you may remember that last year the president was investigated because he appeared to have taken a few classified documents from the White House. I believe they were found in his car and some in his garage or something. Well, This was investigated by a Trump-appointed special counsel, Robert Hur, who cleared the president of guilt on this matter in a report that came out recently. And of course, this sounds like great news. Not in 2024, America. Yeah. (laughs) Except the attention surrounding this report immediately turned to the reason why Biden wouldn't be charged. And I'm going to read from the executive summary from the report, and it says... We have also considered that at trial, Mr. Biden would likely present himself to a jury, as he did during our interview of him, as a sympathetic, well-meaning, elderly man with poor memory. Based on our direct interactions with and observations of him, he is someone for whom many jurors will want to identify reasonable doubt. 
it would be difficult to convince a jury that they should convict him, by then a former president well into his 80s, of a serious felony that requires a mental state of willfulness. And so that's, again, from the executive summary, but there are other parts of the report that cite examples in which Biden appears to forget exactly when he was vice president. And so this, I'm quoting again from the report, it says, quote, in his interview with our office, Mr. Biden's memory was worse. He did not remember when he was vice president, forgetting on the first day of the interview when his term ended. And then it quotes him saying, if it was 2013, when did I stop being vice president? And forgetting on the second day of the interview when his term began. In 2009, am I still vice president? He did not remember, even within several years, when his son Bo died. And his memory appeared hazy when describing the Afghanistan debate that was once so important to him. And so there's more there, but I think that basically gets the gist of it. And so in a press conference after the report was released, Biden denied that he had issues relating to his memory. But of course, it didn't help that in that same press conference, he mixed up the president of Egypt with the president of Mexico. And although he did admit this to one reporter who challenged him on the issue, he said, quote, my memory is so bad that I let you speak, unquote. So at least he acknowledges that there is an issue there. Badass grandpa. For sure. And while some of the specific language in the report is definitely really concerning, and I will admit I am, and I always have been, concerned about our 80 plus year old president's health and well-being, but the overall tone has, I think, been misrepresented a bit. And so I just want to note that hers argument was not that we can't put this guy on trial because he's just a doddering old man who can't even remember anything, but rather it was the story that Joe Biden forgot that he brought home these documents is believable because he will appear to a jury to be a forgetful old man. And so I think that was something that was a little bit dishonestly reported, if I'm being honest in the media, like the reports that I were hearing were basically saying that he said, well, this guy is just too forgetful to even speak at trial, so we can't put him up there or whatever. But it's really saying that it's plausible that Joe Biden actually forgot these things because he's a pretty forgetful guy now (laughs) because of his age. So that's just something, I guess, to note. And then I think you wanted to add a little commentary there, Ryan, too. I just don't know what to make of this. I mean, I do know what to make of it in the sense that this is bad. This is once again confirming something that we already know and doing it pretty pretty starkly, pretty brazenly. I do think what's worth noting just to add context, add kind of a broader picture, and in no way, shape, or form am I saying that I'm even remotely or shouldn't anybody be remotely comfortable with Joe Biden just sitting there with a bunch of freaking classified documents just chilling with his ghostwriter, writing his memoir. Um, which I think I have sitting behind me, uh, which definitely changes the way that I look at it. Maybe it's more accurate. But anyway, Joe Biden was sitting down for these like five-hour interviews in, I believe, the immediate aftermath of October 7th, when Hamas launched that horrific surprise attack on just innocent Israelis, which launched the whole the whole conflict. So I can't imagine just sitting there for five hours of interviews being just grilled question after question after question with that percolating in your head. I mean, how did you sleep last night? Probably not very well at all. Also, from what I understand, the report is 388 pages, but from what I understand, her was a lot more generous to other interviewees who along the way might have stumbled, might have forgotten a detail or kind of misremembered it. So I don't know, a part of me wants to look at this as descriptive of one of the issues facing our current president who is running for re-election, but also a part of it just seems like this unnecessary partisan hack job. Before I get anywhere further in my 
reaction. I, I do want to talk about spicy Biden. I like spicy Biden. What do you think of that, Kevin? Do you think that this is like totally unnecessary and even a partisan hack job? Or is there something meaningful that we should take away? You know, did her do us a service ultimately with this reporting? I think my thing is, is that when I actually went and found these quotes, I didn't find them to be that shocking. The idea that it's like, huh, when was I vice president? Was it 2013? Was I still vice president then? Like, I could see myself doing that at this age. Was I still working that job in 2018? Like, I don't know. I could see myself doing that. So they didn't seem that shocking to me. I mean, you know, the idea of forgetting when his son Bo died. I'm also noting that the exact quote from Biden is not there. And I think I kind of agree with you. I don't know if I would call it a hack job necessarily, but I do think that there were some liberties taken here that I think were maybe guided by the pre-existing narrative that Joe Biden is his brain is mush or whatever, that I, I think maybe were not warranted by the actual evidence of what he's showing us here. And I'm kind of with you where I'm definitely worried about Joe Biden's health, but I never know how much to make of these things. You know, there's an NBC article where they have neurologists weigh in and they all kind of say that like, well, this isn't actually that extreme. It's just sort of like normal memory loss that happens when you get older and it doesn't represent dementia, doesn't represent any kind of cognitive decline. And, you know, that might not be true, right? Like I said, it's an NBC article, so obviously they have a bit of a bias, but I'm always skeptical of these narratives, especially when they're not actually coming from neurologists or like doctors of any kind. And to be fair, I guess, to this you know, special counsel, I don't think his purpose was to make a cognitive assessment of Biden. More his purpose was just to say, well, in this case, if we brought this guy in front of a jury, the idea that he's forgetful would be really believable because he kind of is. So... Yeah, I guess those are my thoughts. I'm not sure how much to make of this. I am worried about Joe Biden's health anyway, but this report didn't seem to strike any new ground to me uh, at all, personally. And I think it's so difficult in this day and age too, because we just operate on this default setting of everything's political, right? I mean, this whole investigation into Biden's political. Every investigation into Trump is political. The goddamn Super Bowl is political. So we automatically just assume the worst intentions when maybe they weren't necessarily there. But at the same time, and look, I don't read these reports for a living. I just don't know how much I love this creation of like this fictitious trial that never happens where he says, it's the part that you just referenced where he says, quote, it would be difficult to convince a jury that they should convict him by then a former president well into it. Like, if you're not going to look to convict, then like don't convict. Sorry. Yeah, I hated that language because what you're actually saying there is that the story that he forgot it is super plausible. And that's why we can't put him on trial because the plausible answer is that he just forgot it. And it's so weird to frame this as it's like, well, if we put him in front of a jury, you know, it wouldn't work. And it's like, well, that's because <laughs> the story is so believable. That's what that means when you say, a jury wouldn't buy this. You're saying that your your story, your accusation that Joe Biden deliberately stole these documents is really implausible given what we know about him. And I thought it was the the way that that was worded was it, it felt to me to be a, almost deliberately misleading. And deliberately partisan, you know, deliberately taking a shot across the bow unnecessarily. But either way, it's bad. Like just the idea that, yeah, you know, like a jury would definitely 
I mean, I don't know. I guess I don't have to like it, but yeah, it's just, it's, it's bad. I, I don't know how much swimming upstream he's going to have to do to get past this. Um, I will say though, I did like hearing that Biden's starting to get a little bit spicy behind doors, calling Netanyahu an asshole. And uh, of course, I think the one we all know even better than that, calling Trump a sick fuck. I just think that he just needs to stop doing this behind closed doors. I'm sick of hearing about this third party thinking that they're going to become famous by giving the scoop of, oh, you know, Biden called Trump a sick fuck. Just get Joe out there. Get him to freaking say it behind a podium in South Carolina. I love it. So I think unless we can find a way to reverse the aging process, which of course, this isn't you know, the curious case of Benjamin Button, we can't do that. Age is not going to be something that Biden's going to be able to shift the narrative about, right? He, he's not going to go and hit the gym with RFK Jr., right? And do some benching. He's not going to do a weird backflip off a cliff like RFK Jr. But I think he can own it. You know, he might as well own it by being a little bit more of a crankier old guy who says what he really thinks. Because I think that what he really thinks is what Americans actually want to hear right now. So just to give some of Biden's reactions to this report on the classified documents, he said to the press in response to the report alleging that he did not remember when his son Bo died, quote, how in the hell dare he raise that? Frankly, when I was asked the question, I thought to myself, it wasn't any of their damn business. I don't need anyone to remind me when he passed away or that he passed away. And then behind closed doors to House Democrats, he said, you think I would fucking forget the day my son died? So those ones, I mean, I don't want to dive too into those ones because those are pretty upsetting, honestly. I mean, Biden has dealt with so much just tragedy in his life that it's it's just, it truly is unimaginable. Yeah. And for what it's worth, um, from this NBC article, one of these neurologists, a guy named Dr. Paul Newhouse, who's the clinical core leader for the Vanderbilt Alzheimer's Disease Research Center, he said about this. Quote, if you asked me when my mother passed away, I couldn't necessarily tell you the exact year because it was many years ago, unquote. And granted, I mean, that's not it's not the same situation, right? I mean, Bo, I I want to say Bo died in like 2016 or something. So it wasn't super long ago. But I think the the point is, is like and especially given the fact that we don't actually have the quote of Bo Biden, him forgetting Bo Biden's death. Right. I'm now wondering what that quote actually looks like. Was it like was it like, oh, uh. 2016 was that the year Bo died or like like what was it was it just like an offhand statement that he threw out there now I don't I don't necessarily trust this report <laughs> to just like state that accurately unless I have the actual words which maybe they're out there and maybe I can find them but I, I at this moment I don't have them and it's rough because in a lot of ways as far as the language goes it sucks it's fishy they're not like like we don't know what was actually said it's a lot of secondhand stuff but it might as well not be for the way it's being received. And there's just nothing that we can do about that. I did like Joe Biden getting even sassier though. So speaking from the diplomatic reception room, he directly took on the issue of his memory stating, quote, I know what the hell I'm doing. <laughs> and then he goes on to say, my memory, take a look at what I've done since I've become president. None of you thought I could pass any of the things I got passed. How'd that happen? So I like that kind of started from the bottom. Now we hear mentality. I think he needs more of that. Um, ultimately, I think that's all he can do. Be the cranky old guy that says what he thinks and uh, take on any shot that Trump gives you, you know, just tee off on it. 
Yeah, and I do actually think that that's a good point where a lot of people talk about this in concept, this idea that Biden is so feeble-minded because of his age. But if you actually look at the fact that Biden this entire time, you know, his his presidency basically he had a knife's edge in the in Congress, like a very very slim majority. And he was extremely accomplished legislatively in those two years where he had the majority. And then even with the Republicans in power, he has been able to like negotiate a lot of things. And I don't know if I really buy that he's just this doddering old man who can't think straight. I just don't know if I buy that. And I mean, you could say that some of the things that Biden has done are not perfect, and that's a fair criticism, but it just doesn't seem like he's ineffective as a leader. Like It seems like he's actually quite effective. And for what it's worth, we also don't have... We have quotes from a lot of Republican leaders like Kevin McCarthy or former Republican leaders who will say that he's pretty sharp behind the scenes. Like they they will recall conversations with him and be like, well, he's pretty sharp. And they don't like they have no reason to say that. There's no like if anything, the benefit is to say the opposite. Right. So, yeah, I just don't super buy it. And this report didn't change anything for me personally. It changed something for me just in the sense that I thought, okay, like. Now this is going to be the story for the next few months. Then something else is going to come up that's going to add to it. It just seems like whenever they dull the roar of the age question, something comes right back up and just here we are again, except this time it feels even worse. But let's move on to sunnier topics. If you're a Chiefs fan, that is, or just somebody who likes a good football game, I went to sleep admittedly after halftime, but uh, apparently it was an overtime thriller of a football game. So so for those of you that watched the Super Bowl, in addition to seeing the cameras cut away to Taylor Swift a calculated 12 times for a total of 53 seconds with the longest cut lasting a full 10.5 seconds. And uh, I don't know what that says about the person that did that research, but there you go. In addition to seeing that, you may also have seen the Chiefs beat the 49ers, thus making alt-right conspiracy theory, alt-right conspiracy fact. You certainly saw a copious amount of Jesus ads, even with a little bit of kinky stuff about Jesus watch, washing feet, which is always fun, uh, which I could only imagine would have been money better spent, like, I don't know, feeding people, like doing the work that Jesus went out and did, right? Feed the feed the hungry, clothe the needy, heal the sick. I could only imagine what $14 million could do, but nope, we'll spend it on the Super Bowl. I'm sure you also saw the ad promoting the Church of Scientology with the slogan, Curious. Curious about what? I guess you got to pay a couple hundred thousand bucks to know. And uh, look, bless their hearts, honestly, or whatever it is the Scientologists say to each other. Just don't sue me over it because I don't have the money to afford uh, Saul Goodman from Better Call Saul to take Scientology down for good. Anyway, somewhere crammed into all of that. You might have caught a 30-second advertisement for Robert F. Kennedy Jr. for president. I was so freaking excited to see this. It was hilarious. And like everything RFK Jr. related, things are almost always stupider than they appear. So the ad, which blew $7 million for 30 seconds of airtime, was created by the American Values Super PAC, which this is important to the story, especially because there have been accusations from the DNC that RFK Jr. has uh, been dealing with some uh, campaign finance uh, violations. 
According to Federal Election Commission rules, the candidate cannot consult with the super PAC, so there wasn't really any conversation surrounding this ad going into the Super Bowl where hundreds of thousands, millions of eyeballs were looking at it. And the ad itself, if you didn't see it, it calls back to the song and animations that were used in one of JFK's 1960 campaign advertisements, the song that was played called Kennedy for Me. I will admit, it's Bob, but kind of in the schoolhouse rock sense of the word, if that makes sense. And young Bobby pinned the ad to his ex-profile, and everyone, especially immediate family, was thrilled that another Kennedy office seeker paid tribute to his family roots of politicking as well as spending stupid amounts of money to do so. Except that wasn't what happened. Within less than 24 hours of the ad going on the air during the Super Bowl, RFK Jr. took back to X to apologize to family members who also took to X, as family does to resolve disputes, to call him out for using images of JFK as well as JFK's sister Eunice Kennedy in the ad. So Bobby Shriver, who is Eunice Kennedy Shriver's son, RFK Jr.'s cousin, tweeted the following, quote, My cousin's Super Bowl ad used our Uncle JFK's faces and my mother's, Eunice Kennedy Shriver. She would be appalled by his deadly healthcare views. Respect for science, vaccines, and healthcare equity were in her DNA. She strongly supported my healthcare work at one campaign and at RED, which he opposes. To which RFK Jr. responded, quote, Bobby, I'm so sorry if that advertisement caused you pain. The ad was created and aired by the American Values Super PAC without any involvement or approvals from my campaign. Federal rules prohibit Super PACs from consulting with me or my staff. I send you and your family my sincerest apologies. God bless you. And to show that he meant it, he posted basically the same thing again, just took Bobby Shriver's name out of it and just posted a general thing for his whole family and proceeded to not only have the ad up, but have it pinned to his profile for a couple more hours before unpinning it and still keeping it on his stream. So to me, this kind of feels more like a, uh, I'm sorry you feel that way than a, I'm sorry for what I did, or in this case, what my super PAC did. And honestly, as I'm rereading this, it doesn't even seem like something that he would have written. Like it seems like somebody wrote this apology to his own cousin for him and then just copy and paste it again for everybody else in the family who was pissed and was probably supporting Joe Biden anyway. So any thoughts about this? I got a kick out of this. Yeah, I love the part where he's like, federal rules prohibit super PACs from consulting with me or my staff. Like it sounds like it sounds like, see, legally you can't be mad at me. When like, you know, of yeah. course you can. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. I guess I mean there's they're so rich and they've been so rich forever. And we make fun of RFK Jr. like taking away from his father's legacy and things like that. But nothing can take away from what Sergeant Shriver and Eunice Shriver did. I mean, Eunice Shriver alone, she started the Special Olympics. I mean, she is just such a crusader and, and such a hero that nothing that he's going to do can take away from that legacy. But uh, you just hope that maybe there was like something that didn't go on on X for, I don't know, everybody to see going on, like some sort of a, <laughs> some sort of a conversation over the phone, maybe, you know, this isn't really an apology at all. 
This is reciting a rule and saving face for people like, I don't know, you and me who see it. Yeah, I mean, for sure. I do think uh, there's a lot of talk about how, you know, maybe if you're on the right, you might look at Joe Biden, you might say, well, he's in cognitive decline, blah, blah, blah. And that's evidence of how the American empire is in decline. And then if you're on the left, you might look at how, well, there's this reality TV show who tried to overthrow the government and he might win the presidency again. And that's a sign that the American empire is in decline. But the real evidence that the American empire is in decline is the internal conflicts of our royal family, the Kennedys, and how the family is currently kind of tearing itself apart. That's the real real swan song of the American empire right there. God, the setup for that, but at the same time, just how much it pisses me off that that's true. I'll just... I'll leave that one alone. You heard, you heard it here first, folks. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna sit here and disagree with that. So, uh, moving on to someone who, you know, who knows? Maybe one day we'll see him as the new royal family of uh, the American Empire. Uh, oh, Doug Burgum. Don't, don't start. To our feeling the Burgum section, which is a segment that we usually close the episode with in honor of. A man who not so long ago stumbled out of the wilderness of North Dakota. A man who turned out to be the governor of the state, because who knew they had one of those? And not only that, he was a man who was running for president, Doug Burgum. And I'm sure we can all remember fondly how his long shot campaign for president got us excited, fired up, and of course, feeling the Burgum. And that maybe, just maybe, this goofy guy with the eyebrows and the torn ACL could overcome the forces of the RNC and the deep state to become president. And of course, that did not happen. The chosen one did not fulfill his prophecy. And instead, he dropped out and endorsed Trump, leaving us no other choice but to feel the Burgum about other things in an attempt to feel what that campaign originally made us feel. I'm feeling the Burgum this week about a particular interview with a particular dictator with a particular former Fox News host. And if you don't know who I'm talking about, Tucker Carlson interviewed Vladimir Putin. It was not on Fox News this time for obvious reasons. It is on X. You can watch it if you go to Tucker Carlson's page. And before I dive into my thoughts on that, I'm going to do a little aside here and talk about one of my personal favorite books, which is called From Beirut to Jerusalem. And it's written by Thomas Friedman, who is a New York Times journalist occasionally controversial. I don't know, but the book is very good. And he writes about being a journalist in Beirut, where, you know, there's all these, I don't want to say they're dictators, but they're dictatorial kind of guys that he interviews. And one of the things he talks about is there's this tricky balance that you have to make if you want to be a journalist in one of these places where these guys, because they're dictators, will only talk to people who suck up to them endlessly and who they know 100% will basically just repeat talking points that they want repeated. They're looking for propagandists, not real journalists. And so there's a balance that you have to strike between getting the story because you still want to be able to interview the guy and be able to report something to the world about what's going on in these internal politics of these dictators and whatnot. But at the same time, you don't want to just become a propagandist for some dictator. That's obviously not good either. And so when I heard that Tucker did this interview with Vladimir Putin, My initial thought based on that previous book that I had read was that actually Tucker is the perfect guy to do this interview. And in fact, maybe he's the only American journalist who could do it. There's probably a few others. 
And the reason is because Tucker Carlson has spent the past two-ish, three, maybe even more years basically sucking up to Vladimir Putin and singing his praises and repeating all his propaganda talking points. And so there was a part of me that was really excited for this interview when I heard about it, because I was like, this could be a moment where we really get a window into what Putin is thinking, because this guy who, and granted, let me say, because I haven't said it yet, I think Tucker Carlson's terrible. I think he's a horrible journalist, a hack journalist, propagandist who is bad for the country. But I was like, this could be maybe the only good thing he's done in his career. And I maintain that I think that it was. And that's why I was frustrated when I found that every article about this interview talking about how it was problematic that he did the interview, you know, he shouldn't have done it or whatever. And almost nobody was actually talking about the substance of the interview. And it's very frustrating to me that I think everything now has to just get caught up in the culture war rather than us being able to talk about an interview that happened, even if we don't like the guy who did the interview for good reasons. But instead, we're talking about how it's bad to interview dictators because we shouldn't want to know what one of the most powerful men in the world is thinking. And if you listen to the interview, which I did, there's a lot of important things that are said that are not being talked about in NPR because other things are being talked about, about how Tucker Carlson is a bad person and blah, blah, blah. Like, for example, like, for example, at one point in the interview, Putin goes on to say that he has no interest in invading Poland, Poland or Latvia or any other country. And noticeably, he doesn't say anything about Estonia. Maybe that's because that applies to every other country. But the fact that Estonia has a province that's very, very close to Russia and that historically has had some issues, it's telling that he didn't mention Estonia. And he instead mentioned there are also a lot of places where we have to wonder, is Putin actually interested in peace when he says he's not done denazifying Ukraine? What does denazifying Ukraine actually mean? Is it possible to negotiate a ceasefire now if he believes he has to dismantle the current regime or whatever? And, you know, I'm not an expert in geopolitics or whatever. So all of these things could be wrong. All of my assessments could totally be wrong. But the point is, is that these things aren't really being talked about by the media because instead we're talking about whether it was right or wrong for Tucker to do the interview at all, which is absurd. And one of the most frustrating things about this, to move on to my last point, is that there are so many moments in this interview where Putin blows apart right-wing narratives from people who have been apologizing for Putin ever since he invaded Ukraine. For example, in the beginning, there's this hilarious moment where Tucker opens by asking Putin not if he had launched the attack on Ukraine because he was afraid of the U.S., but rather how he knew that the U.S. was going to attack him from NATO. And Putin's reply was kind of amazing. He just says, it's not that the U.S. would launch a strike on Russia. I didn't say that. Is this a talk show or a serious interview? Is a is a good clapback. Obviously, I hate Putin, but it, it's it's interesting that this whole narrative that John Mearsheimer and Tucker Carlson, all these guys have been painting for the past two, three years, Putin categorically denies it. It's totally false. It would have been great to have that for left wing journalists to run with and say, look, your guy totally denied everything you've been saying for the past you know, three years. And we didn't get that because we had to talk about how problematic the interview was or, or whatever. So that's what I'm feeling the Bergram about this week. This is interesting. I kind of want to come at you for this a little bit because I have some disagreements. Um, first of all, I didn't watch the interview, so I should just preface it with that. I am one of those people who I listened to my my NPR, you know, and uh, did my reading and all the other stuff, but didn't watch the interview itself. You know, I got other uh, interpretations of it, but for what it's worth, I just was tremendously offended. I, I thought Tucker had a lot of nerve to go over there 
and interview Putin. And I just think it was, it, I think it's a goofy thing to think that, a goofy thing and a dangerous thing to think that if you send over a guy who has just been pretending that he's a journalist for the past however long, I guess probably ever since he <laughs> arrived at Fox News, to interview a dictator who is notorious for lying and for creating you know, false, false equivalencies, false narratives, falsehoods to justify him doing whatever he wants as just being anything substantive that we can get anything out of. I mean, I like, I, I don't like, but I, I get the idea of like, hey, look, this is one of the most dangerous men in the world. We should be hearing the things that this guy says, but Tucker's not going to get anything meaningful out of this guy. And I don't think he even did. And I think it's frankly offensive that he spun the interview as I'm going over here to talk to Putin because Western journalists don't want to do this when that's just patently false. When you have guys like Evan Gershkovich, who has been rotting in a brutal KGB prison for having the nerve to be a Russian correspondent for the Wall Street Journal. And I think even the Wall Street Journal hasn't been super up in arms about this guy. I mean, it's almost like he's forgotten. They throw American journalists in prison on trumped up charges in Russia. There's a reason why Putin allowed Tucker to go over there. And I, I do, I, I completely agree with what Hillary said about Hillary Clinton. And it's because he's a useful idiot. He can parrot a certain message, you know, to the American people using Tucker, just basically as a pawn. And I think it's just, it's frankly just nauseating. I mean, this is a guy, Putin, who has abducted 20,000 children from their parents and counting and relocated them into Russia, is teaching them to hate their own country. They will never see their parents again. He's broken apart families. He's killed countless people. And uh, the people who want to report on that, the Americans who want to report on that, are in jail. The Russians who want to report on that are in jail. And this guy is allowed over just because he he's a useful idiot. The people who would actually challenge Putin, he's cleared the playing field so that doesn't happen. Yeah, so so that's why I said what I said in the beginning, right? Because yes, you're right. The only people that are going to be allowed to talk to Putin are are people who are going to be like useful idiots, to use Hillary Clinton's phrase. But again, that doesn't mean that the information we get out of it isn't useful, right? We get Putin talking for three hours about basically whatever he wants, and yeah, like it's true. I mean, Tucker basically just let him say whatever he wanted. I will I will say. There was meaningful questions asked. There was interesting questions asked. Tucker definitely did just sort of let Putin speak. But that's kind of my point is that we want to know what this guy is is thinking. We want these thoughts projected. And they were projected. And we did get information out of it. There are things that Putin said in that interview that are telling for his strategy. But are um, we supposed to believe those things? That he's not going to go after Poland and, and expand out no, of to course. their NATO countries after Ukraine? Are we supposed to believe any of those things? Of course not. Of course not. Obviously, right? Obviously, Putin's going to lie. That's, that's the whole thing. The question is, how is he going to lie? What is he going to lie about? And what are like interesting things that Hey, he kind of left out, right? He says he's not going to invade Poland. Is that true? Probably not, right? I'm not saying we should believe that. But what is interesting is that he didn't bring up Estonia. He conveniently left that out, right? What does that tell us? Does that tell us that Estonia is next? Maybe it doesn't. I don't know. Like, I'm just a guy who talks about shit on the internet. But someone who's smarter than me, a journalist, should look at that interview, look at other information that they might have about Putin and about his strategy, and write something interesting about it. That's what journalists are supposed to do. It's just, it's kind of infuriating to me. Everything you said about Tucker is true. 
everything that you said about Putin is true. We have now a three hour interview with Putin where he is basically allowed to say whatever he wants and no article at all is talking about any of the things he said, given that, uh, again, I think a lot of the things that he said could potentially be interesting. It's just it's just kind of crazy to me that like the focus is just because it's Tucker and because Tucker's obviously a stooge and an idiot and propagandist that the focus is on Tucker and not on war, you know, <laughs> the actual issue at hand. I just don't see how this is anything other than allowing Putin to set the game up and play it according to his rules completely. Well, it is that. Utterly. Yeah. Like if Tucker had any balls, the opening question would either be about the fact that he is abducting children and murdering Ukrainians and still calling it a special military operation, or that he's locked up a guy who does Tucker's exact job, essentially. I mean, you know, I guess in, in name only, but you get what I'm saying, and is, has no plans to let this man go, that he is locked up for you know no legitimate reason, Alexei Navalny. He had um, freaking Boris Nemtsov gunned down in the streets. I mean, I, I just. But I mean, don't this is kind of this is kind of my point. West. Like, we're making this about Tucker, and we're making this about well, Tucker could have asked this, he could have asked that. Sure, he could have, but then he wouldn't be Tucker, and he wouldn't have gotten the interview, and we wouldn't have any of this information. We know the answers to the, all of those questions. Alexei Navalny is in prison on trumped up charges. It's all nonsense. Putin is kidnapping Ukrainian children. Like those are questions that we already have the answers to, but we don't have the que- like the answer to the questions of what's next, right? What's next after Ukraine? And those are things that, again, smarter people than me could have analyzed and tried to make some sense out of, given other information that they might have about Putin. But again, like instead, we're just talking about Tucker and how Tucker's dumb. And it's like, cool, we we knew that. We already knew that as well. So, But then what's the other just, thing yeah. that we could be talking about? This sham interview with Putin where he basically set the exact rules for engagement? I mean, I don't think there's anything useful that we could have gotten out of this interview. I mean, I'll have to watch it. You know, Admittedly, I'll have to watch it. But I just don't think that there's anything that came out of this. I mean, certainly there was for Putin. But I think the West well, got played well, you should watch like a fiddle. And, well, you should watch it. And I will say, first of all, we do this all the time, right? We analyze propaganda from dictators all the time. And it's, yeah, of course, they're always lying, right? That's the whole thing about being a dictator. But the question is, can we can we get any interesting information out of their lies? And I tend to think that we can in this case. And it's true that Tucker was played like a fiddle in this whole interview. But what is the song and what does the song tell us about about what Putin's strategy is? And it's, you know, I will say there were articles written out there that are interesting. I, you know, it's not everybody. There was a pretty good article in Politico that went through some of this stuff, but just a lot of them to me, completely shallow. Like there was a specific NPR article that I read and I think there was maybe like three to four paragraphs about the substance of the interview. And then it was stuff about how Tucker Carlson got fired from Fox and he's a loser. And that was really it. And it was just kind of mind blowing to me. That's all that we have to talk about, about a three hour interview with arguably one of the most important people on the planet. It's like, is he lying? Sure. But what's the reality underneath? Like, right. What, why is he lying about what he's lying about? What can we learn from all of these things? And yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's, I guess, kind of my perspective. I hear what you're saying with everybody going after Tucker from a character sense, but I think you have to bring Tucker into the equation to really understand Putin's motivations here. And I'm not saying that I 
understand Putin's motivations, but from what I'm getting out of this, just I'm not flexing. I it was it was a long year last year. I read that whole uh, 666 uh, page biography of of Putin. You know, reading about Alexei Navalny, and then you know, with all this going on, it just seems like the timing couldn't be more deliberate, right? We have this bill that the Republicans walk away from that is tied directly to aid from the Ukraine, aid which, by the way, Ukraine desperately, desperately needs right now to continue fighting this war. I think Russia has like, I don't want to give any military statistics that I'm not sure of, um, but they're losing, right? So it almost seems like the message here was, I'm going to bring one of the most respected journalists from the right, from people that support guys like Trump, just to prove the point that I could bring him here, we could talk on my terms, and I can show you that, look, all I had to do with this conflict was wait it out. That bill, not going to go through Congress, and guess what? When Trump gets elected in 2024, I'm not even going to have to worry about the US and NATO. I'm just going to walk into Ukraine. Well, so that's actually, I think you brought up the bill that, you know, it, it could give aid to Ukraine. And I think that's actually why I feel that this is so important is there are nuggets in here that the, for lack of a better term, like the left and like the center and like the people who want to support Ukraine, there are nuggets in here that they could have used and they they won't because they don't like Tucker or, or something, right? Like if it is the case that Estonia is the next frontier of this war or if it or if it's Poland or something right but if it is the case that Estonia is the next frontier that's something that our journalists should be talking about because that's going to make people realize how serious this war is and that we kind of need Ukraine to win because Estonia happens to actually be a member of NATO and if there's a war over Estonia then this whole thing could go nuclear these are the types of things that our journalists should be talking about. And they could be things that could motivate people to want that bill to pass. But we're we're not talking about those. <laughs> you know, we're character assassinating Tucker. And you know, as far as I'm concerned, Tucker's character has been dead for years. <laughs> so like I guess it's just not interesting to me to hear all these things about how bad Tucker is. Yeah, you know, it's true that this interview is is a deliberate move by Putin because he knows that Tucker is the type of guy who will kind of let him say what he wants. And, you know, that's that's true. But also, there are so many other things we could talk about here. And if you want to talk about that, that's fine. Like, that's something that's added context. That's important. I don't. I have no problem with that. My problem is that that's the only thing we're talking about. Yeah, and I hear what you're saying with that. I guess we can agree to disagree on certain parts because, yeah, I just don't see the use of giving a an evil guy like Putin a softball interview. Whether you're Tucker or whether you're, uh, you know, Jake Tapper, while uh, Evan Gershkovitz is is rotting, you know, in a prison cell, and uh, everything else is going on. But it's about what we can learn about the actual conflict, right? You know, it's not about whether or not we know that's going on, right? Obviously, so it's like there's not really like an interesting question to ask about that. But I will say, if you do, if if anyone listening does choose to listen to the interview, it is true that in the opening of the interview, Putin is like. Can I get just like 30 seconds to explain a little history? And then he drones on for like an hour. Oh, so that's so I, what that was. Okay. Thank you for explaining yeah. that. And it's it's so boring. And, you know, that's the type of thing where, again, maybe there's somebody smarter than me who could parse that and make sense of what he's saying. 
it's all it's all bullshit. Like it's all a bunch of stuff about how Ukraine's not a real country. But you know, th- those are things that like a historian might be able to comment on. But you know, I-, I won't go back down the rabbit hole of like, oh well, nobody's talking about this. But anyways, yeah, that's that's the whole meme about Putin being like, yeah, give me just like thirty seconds to explain everything that's ever happened. I'm trying to think of who a real ruthless interviewer would have been, right? Like, who who would you most want in that room? I'd put a. Uh, Mehdi Hassan. Mehdi Hassan, okay. Yeah, if you if you that dude has interviewed he he'll, he's interviewed like CCP officials and it's oh, wow. brutal. Like he cuts he cuts them the fuck down. It's it's he's okay. intense, that guy. All right. Well, if he's listening, as I know he's not, nah, don't don't go over there. They'll uh they'll throw you in jail. Um what? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, stay All here. Right. We like you. <laughs> yeah, man. Talk to him from yeah the United States. Um, Well, all right, everybody. Thank you for listening. Um, We will be back next week with more of our weekly election coverage. Make sure to follow the show wherever you're listening and uh, recommend it to a friend. We would love that. Word of mouth is everything with podcasting. And uh, we would love to have more people listening and contributing to this conversation and this exciting, but also boring and frustrating election cycle that we're having. So we'll talk to you next week. Before you head out, feel free to subscribe and rate us Leave a friendly comment on the way out. It really helps the podcast when you do. And if you enjoy what we're doing, you can find our Twitter or Instagram in the description below. We'll keep you updated about the show, and we'll also fill your feed with plenty of good old-fashioned memes. Follow us on Facebook as well if you're a Facebook person. Just type The Almost Presidents Podcast into that search bar. And lastly, you can write into the show. Our Gmail is thealmostpresidentspodcast at gmail.com, which you can also find in the description.